Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and is devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Joining us today is Mark Kansian, a senior advisor at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is a retired United States Marine Corps colonel uh, who has been an active uh, strategist and practitioner of strategy uh, in a vast assortment of jobs, has uh, more QDRs to his name than most people do uh, or most people want to admit to uh, doing, uh, as well as uh, shaped a lot of strategic thinking in this uh, town, uh, whether on the Hill at the Office of management and budget and elsewhere, then it's my great pleasure to welcome you back on the program, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, as I mentioned, sponsors our strategy coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Uh, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo. DRS. Uh, Mark, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. It was terrific uh, seeing you uh, last week uh, at your War Game uh, series. Um, you're doing a series of uh, very similar uh, China-related and Taiwan scenario-related uh, War Games to combine, to sort of, instead of doing a War Game one and done, run in over and over and over again and see the kind of feedback um, that you uh, get from, from folks on that uh, in able to be able to de develop more thoughtful strate strategies ultimately. Um, what's the key to staging in, in your view, a, a successful, uh, not just war game, but series of war games? Well, one thing is keeping in mind what it is you're trying to do. And by that, I mean that if you have a war game with uh, adjudication by a white cell that you run once, it could be very educational for the people who are involved, but it's a pretty thin foundation uh, to do analysis on because you're at the um, uh, mercy of your white cell and the way they uh, judge outcomes. And you're also only going through it once with a particular set of players uh, who take one particular uh, strategy. So extrapolating from that to you know, uh, the broad possibilities of future uh, conflict is uh, uh, very um, uh, tenuous. Um, what we've done is we've developed a war game for a U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan, and we are running it 22 times. Uh, we've run about six of the base case, and then we run different scenarios to see how changes in assumptions uh, will affect the outcome. And by having many different participants and running the game many different times, we think we are developing a stronger analytical foundation uh, for looking at what uh, a future conflict might entail and what policies then the United States might uh, adopt to reduce risk and increase the prospects for success. You gain kudos from uh, many about running it multiple times, but that's not necessarily new, right? I mean, the Naval War College is uh, trying to do something very similar in the classified war games they do. And then folks say, well, but, you know, uh, yours, Mark, is uh, with publicly, uh, you know, or unclassified in, in form. From your standpoint, um, how do you respond to those who sort of raise those as criticisms of sort of the way you guys are going to it? Or, or put another way, perhaps, what's the goodness of what you're trying to bring to it uh, without taking anything away from anybody else? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are three reasons why we think that an unclassified war game is valuable. I mean, the first is that there's a lot of information out there. Um, we're seeing that during the war in Ukraine, where information that's available in the open sources is probably just about as good as they're getting uh, in the Pentagon and the classified sources. Uh, you have overhead, you've got lots of details on weapon systems. So there's a lot of information out there. Uh, and the, the second thing uh, is that the analysis that follows from that, you know, produces some very um, explicit uh, results that we can use over and over again, uh, so that we have a, a transparency uh, that's not available for classified war games. And sort of building on that last uh, item, one of the great problems about 
classified war games when they're talked about in the public is that you never really know what the assumptions are. You don't know what the relationships of the various parameters are, or, uh, you know, how they uh, resolve uh, combat. So it's very hard to say whether that's sensible or not. And a lot of the information that comes out of these games, frankly, looks very self-serving. You know, one you know, service might come out and say, you know, we ran a war game and we found that we need more of the widgets that we're buying. Uh, and that might be true, but it does look a bit self-serving. So putting all that together, we're pretty confident that um, our unclassified war game uh, is a useful uh, addition to uh, the discussion in the national security community and it, that it doesn't suffer from the lack of having classified information. Um, and, and I should uh, note without giving any, you know, I'm not going to mention any of the names because that's part of the uh, rules on this, but they're actually remarkably thoughtful people who actually have a lot of experience in doing some of these things operationally, otherwise, career-wise. Um, so it, it is some very qualified people who've been uh, participating uh, in, in your games without mentioning any names. Um, well, and, and on that, that I, I, I would also add that um, as we were putting the game together, we went out to a lot of subject matter experts and as for their views uh, and we're able to incorporate those uh, also. So we were uh, you know, pretty confident that there were not major pieces, at least in the unclassified literature that we were missing. Um, I, I should also uh, point out, uh, because this is, uh, uh, th this is you and, I, and you and I have discussed this, right? I mean, I, I thought what was interesting is, uh, at least in the two sessions that I um, uh, uh, was there for, what was interesting is the feedback you also got from folks and how you guys actually addressed that feedback, right? Like, okay, how can we make this better? How do we respond to these criticisms and critiques uh, to, to continue to improve the game? Because ultimately, uh, right, you, you want it to be as accurate and, and, and to do lessons learned on them. But one of the things I think which is interesting, um, Mark, is in every one of these war games that I've been familiar with, um, the, the conflict sort of surprises people with its brutality. Um, at the sheer number of casualties, the sheer number of aircraft lost, many of them fifth generation aircraft that aren't lost in, in combat, they're lost on the ground uh, in, in vast you know, DF-26 and DF-17 missile barrages, whether they're in Mazawa, whether they're in Guam or, or anywhere else. Um, aircraft carrier battle groups are lost. Um, what, what do you think are sort of the biggest takeaways, especially after playing this game so many times that you think really need to be sort of maybe carved in some form of hard material uh, that people uh, bear in mind as, as we do our strategic planning now? Overall, what we found is that the United States and Taiwan and often Japan can prevail in a conflict against China. And that is they can um, ensure that Taiwan remains an autonomous uh, entity but that occurs at very high cost, as you were uh, noting there. Uh, lots of aircraft and ships lost, lots of destruction uh, to the Taiwanese infrastructure and economy. So there, we ran a, a number of, of scenarios looking at ways that we might be able to reduce uh, those losses to get a, a victory that was not, um, uh, did not involve uh, as many uh, losses. And, and not just losses in the abstract, but then you know the the cost that that would entail, the humanitarian costs, but also the costs to um, U.S. foreign policy as U.S. Um, military capabilities were uh, degraded for a number of years, and you know possibility of other opportunistic uh, aggressors taking advantage of U.S. Uh, weakness. So there are a variety of things that the United States can do uh, to improve its uh, position. Uh, the concluding chapter uh, is entitled, Victory is Not Enough, to get at this notion that, yes, we win, but that's not enough. We need to win uh, more clearly and build capabilities that might uh, improve deterrence also. And, and so as you look at that portfolio, right, I mean, we, we uh, found, I should point out, your, your son, Matt, uh, is participating in these also and is a, is a defense thinker, uh, clearly in his own, own right. So well done, uh, raising the future generation of national security, Mark. Um, the, you know, one of the questions is, what's, what's relevant, what, you know, and I want to get into a relevancy discussion in a minute, because I think that sometimes people 
you know, it can be old, but still really useful as we found in, in the case of the B-52 in, in, in this war game and, and a number of others. But what are, what are some of the deeper conclusions about what it is we're getting right and what it is we're not getting right, right? For example, we run out of long range missilery or even mid range missilery, right? Um, and our inventories are simply, our magazines aren't deep enough. Uh, there are questions about the viability of the, of the surface force, right? I mean, the Navy would argue, of course, we need these surface combatants for all the other phases short of the balloon going up, right? What are some of the harder truths that are unveiled each time you play this game? And are they, adequately being reflected in American strategy, budgeting, planning? Well, the United States has done a, uh, you know, some things that are very uh, sensible. We've built some um, hardening of shelters um, for aircraft. Uh, we've, um, there's a lot of money in the 23 budget to uh, improve uh, defenses on uh, Guam. Uh, we uh, have bought a lot of uh, munitions and those are all uh, very good things. If there are a couple of sort of um, um, highlights about what we might do differently, the biggest, the foot stomp, is that we need to buy more uh, long-range anti-surface ship missiles. Uh, our inventory there is very low, very low compared to our land attack missiles. In other words, uh, Lorazums, uh, which is the long-range anti-ship missile, our inventory is only a in 2026, about 450, whereas we have something over 7,000 JASMs of the land attack uh, missile. And we, you know, we really need to reverse that uh, to be able to go after the Chinese fleet. Uh, after that, there are a couple of other things. Building more hardened shelters helps. It is true that no shelter is impervious uh, to attack, but the harder you make the uh, airfields, the more missiles it takes uh, to, to eliminate them and the longer your uh, aircraft uh, last. Um, the United States is building a lot of submarines, probably about the maximum rate, uh, and that's good. And we should keep doing that. Uh, every once in a while, the Navy gets tempted to go from two to one attack submarines in a year, and they really should keep uh, going at uh, one caution we see is that a good deterrent also makes an excellent target. This is something the United States found to its um, dismay in 1941. Uh, and to rerun history here a bit, uh, a bit, in the spring of 1941, the US moved the battle fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor to be a better deterrent to the Japanese. The problem is that put the battle fleet within range of the Japanese uh, striking force. And we all know about the tragic results that occurred. US strategic doctrine says, in a crisis, we will move forces forward to deter prospective um, adversaries. And that by moving forward, you know, we show our, our commitment and improve our war fighting. And there's a lot to be said for that. The problem is that puts them inside the Chinese missile envelope. And very often uh, these, these uh, uh, deterrent forces will be destroyed in the opening salvos of a uh, Chinese missile barrage. So we have to be very careful about uh, you know, not creating a target with our deterrent force. Um, one of the, uh, you know, indicators is, right, I mean, the Chinese can read just like we can, uh, right? So they know how many weapons we have roughly, and we know that they have a rather enormous arsenal of uh, weapons at all ranges that can reach out and touch us, right? Command economy, they make the order. We have no idea how accurate they are, but it would be awful to find, <laughs> to find out that we're actually a lot better than we thought they were uh, when, when they were coming at you. Do, do you have sort of what are the right numbers, right? Because one of the things that came up, at least in the two that I saw, was that we, we run, start to run out of things. And one of the things you do in your war game, and I think you mentioned this, right? There's another crisis happening on the other side of the world that is imp impeding America's ability to flex all of its capacity here, right? I mean, it's a Russia thing is happening on the other side of the planet, and you need to be dealing with that as well. What are Are there any harder numbers, Mark, in terms of we need another 10 submarines, right? We, we need, the El-Razm number has to be four times that number. What, what are some of the harder um, consensus numbers that are coming out of this? Because, you know, we've, we've sort of said, oh, the more exquisite it gets, the better it is. But numbers have a very important quantity, uh, a role to play in, in this, as, you know, every strategist always points out, right? You know, numbers matter. Do, do, we, do you have a clearer idea of whether 
the numbers are the right numbers um, ultimately. Um, and, and if not, I, what's a better number? Yeah. Right? I, uh, on Lorasm, the long range anti-ship missiles, the better number is a lot more. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, okay. uh, you know, by 2026, we'll have about 450. Um, the US player uh, goes through those sometimes in the first turn, each turn being three and a half days. Uh, certainly by the second or third turn, the United States is out of anti-ship uh, missiles and therefore has to get in much closer if it wants to strike um, uh, the Chinese fleet. Uh, we have a lot of long-range land attack missiles, the JASM, and those are very useful. Uh, the problem is twofold. I mean, one is, of course, we need more of the uh, anti-ship version, and they're built on the same assembly line. So we, there's nothing you know, we, we could certainly, you know, move from one to the other. The other problem with with JASM is it reflects, I think, a an inclination, frankly, by the Air Force to attack land targets, um, and you know, win the war by attacking airfields and ports and command control facilities and those sorts of uh, targets. Um, and this, it's not that that's wrong, but it's a very first risky strategy when your adversary is a nuclear power. And the second th thing is that it, it's an indirect effect on the key uh, capability of the Chinese, and that's their ability to land forces on Taiwan. If you can eliminate the Chinese amphibious fleet, then the rest is irrelevant because they can't get forces onto Taiwan, uh, even if they control uh, the skies. Uh, so switching that balance is important. Now, what's the right number for uh, Lorasm? I mean, I would say at least 2,000. Uh, and you know, people might argue for, for more than that, but at least 2,000. Um, I, I think the tragedy of this is that Rat Willard and every Pacific commander has been calling for uh, this kind of weapon. Uh, and it's now 2026 that we begin to sort of increase the stock to 450, which is which is sort of startling, right? And we're starting to get into that maximum zone of potential danger, depending on who you, from, from your perspective, Mark, right? I mean, so the interesting thing about these war games is that the Chinese really do lose, right? And they have brigades worth of forces that they can't resupply, are going to get picked off in, in Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and the, the point of it is, if you'd ask, people in Germany or in Japan, they would have also said going to world war is going to be stupid and we would ultimately lose those world wars. And, and yet authoritarian uh, states have a tendency of doing that stuff, right? You would think that the Chinese would look at some of this and deter themselves from being muscular. And we saw with, in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit that the Chinese went whole hog and will continue to do uh, military exercises. What, what, how do we, you know, and, and oh, oh, by the way, the Chinese may conclude that they have such visibility into our uh, classified systems or into our concepts of operation that they can actually surprise us, turn the tables a little bit as uh, Jim Stavridis does in his book, uh, right? That, that the Chinese uh, and their allies are doing stuff that we didn't think they were doing uh, and are, are then able to become quite successful in the early phases of the war. From, from your standpoint, what's, what's the role of miscalculation and how we have to think about miscalculation? Because even if it's a stupid idea, she may do it. And then what's the role of surprise? Because we are remarkably confident about our capabilities and what we think their capabilities are, but we may be in for a surprise. And how does surprise play into that? How do we need to think about this space, maybe in a little bit of a more nuanced fashion? Sure. Uh, well, you know, as you've alluded to, um, we did a series of studies on surprise. One was called coping with surprise. And the other one was called inflicting surprise. One was about how to deal with it. Uh, recognizing that surprise was inevitable. That's why it was coping with surprise, not avoiding surprise. And the other one was how to um, use surprise yourself and not just be surprised. Um, and probably the, the highlight that comes out of that is surprise happens. Surprising things happen because by definition, you're not expecting them. And people do unexpected things. As you said, uh, the Japanese launched a war against the United States, which they knew they couldn't win. Uh, but they felt that that was their best option at that moment. And when U.S. Uh, um, strategists look back on it, on that decision, you know, they were scratching their heads because they said, you know, we knew that it would 
come out badly for them. They knew it was going to come out badly. So why did they do it? Well, they did it because they thought that um, it was their best option at the time. They also had this notion that, you know, the United States might get discouraged if the Japanese defeated us uh, uh, or hurt us hard enough uh, at the very beginning. You know, you see the same thing with the Germans when they, for example, invade uh, Russia. Uh, they knew that this was going to be very difficult, uh, but they felt they, they believed that the Russians uh, would collapse. Uh, there are a whole variety of reasons why the Chinese might make a decision that we regard as uh, uh, imprudent, uh, even irrational, uh, you know, uh, they might, uh, there might be some internal dynamics in the Chinese Communist Party that drives them uh, to, um, uh, you know, look for an external uh, threat, external action. Uh, they might overestimate their own uh, capabilities. They might look at the United States and calculate that we uh, are distracted or we might not react or the lead current leadership, whoever it is, you know, might not um, uh, um, react. So there are a whole variety of reasons where this could happen. And so the, you know, the first uh, uh, observation that came out of those uh, studies was surprise happens. The second thing was uh, U.S. hubris. And that is arising from the fact that for, you know, the last 25 years, an entire generation, we have had military superiority over everybody. And although we now recognize that that is not going to be the case in the future. It's still, you know, deeply embedded in the way that the American military and the American public think about conflict. You know, we we may have, for example, been unsuccessful in uh, Afghanistan, but there was no question that the Taliban were going to defeat us on the battlefield. Uh, you know, they may have won politically, uh, but you know, we had you know, so much firepower, we weren't, weren't going to lose on the, uh, the battlefield. Same with uh, Iraq. Uh, we're in a very different situation with China. Um, casualties will be, you know, much, much higher. And it's, I think, going to be very difficult for the United States to, and the military to, to think about uh, that and operating in those kinds of conditions. Just to give you an illustration uh, you alluded to, you know, the, the hundreds of aircraft that get destroyed, mostly on the ground. Uh, later arriving reinforcements on Kadena, for example, U.S. Uh, air base on Okinawa, which is, you know, quite close to uh, Taiwan. Uh, th they're going to land on an airfield where there are literally hundreds of wrecked aircraft bulldoze to the side of the runway and these reinforcements are going to land there and say welcome to Kadena. you know tomorrow you're taking off to strike the chinese you know who by the way did all of this destruction uh, that's not something that we are accustomed to it's particularly not something that the air force is accustomed to they've been operating in sanctuary you know essentially since you know 1945 so uh, there's a there's a whole different mindset that goes with this kind of war um, I, I want to get to uh, the um, discussion around that, because talking to senior leaders, um, there is an acknowledgement that this conversation that has not yet been had with the American people must be had, and that it must be had carefully. And I, I want to go to that. Well, let me, let me, let's go to that. And then I'll, I'll go to my follow-up question then. How do we need to have that conversation, um, Mark? Because you're a Vietnam veteran, 56,000 yep. Americans died in that war. Um, Arguably, the numbers would have been much, much higher in Iraq and Afghanistan if we weren't as good at the golden hour. We have a lot of wounded people who otherwise would have not survived, um, uh, who did, which is important. But we're talking about an entire carrier battle, carrier, carrier battle group and six, 7,000 people lost in an afternoon, or as you said, you know, dozens of combat aircraft squadrons and, and maybe maintainers and the people that go with those uh, would, would be lost. Uh, in an afternoon uh, of a campaign that that may, you know, it may be very, very uh, uh, brief, but it also may be somewhat longer uh, than than just a couple of days, right? What's the kind of conversation that senior leaders need to be having at this moment with the American public to prepare them for potential eventualities that would be just stunning in a modern, con you know, in, in, I mean, it was stunning enough in World War II when Hood was lost and only three survivors, right? It, 
would be a very different context today if somebody got on the news and said USS Nimitz with 5,000 aboard is, has been sunk by the Chinese. You know, this is very difficult, of course. Um, I mean, one thing, which I think the military has been doing, is just to keep saying this is going to be a different kind of war. There are going to be very high casualties. Uh, and we say that in the context of we're trying to uh, deter that war, but it's important to keep uh, to keep saying that so that, you know, we, we don't uh, uh, create uh, false expectations. Uh, the other thing the military can do is to develop some protections uh, and some uh, mechanisms to cope with that kind of war. Uh, to give you one illustration, uh, every battle carrier battle group should have a rescue ship attached to them. And by that, I mean a ship that goes behind the carrier battle group that will pick up survivors uh, when a ship gets sunk. Uh, the United States did that with convoys, for example, in the Second World War, because after a while, uh, um, the Navy realized that they had to pick up survivors, you know, for reasons of both morale uh, and humanitarian concerns and for maintaining the force. Uh, but, you know, having a warship pull, you know, drop out to pick up survivors was very uh, risky and, you know, uh, both to the ship while it was stopped and then uh, the loss of the combatant, you know, while it was uh, doing this function. So what they used to do is they used to have a rescue ship in the back of the convoy that would pick up survivors uh, from sunk ships. Um, the United States needs to do that uh, with its carrier battle groups, with its surface action groups, so it can rescue uh, sailors. The, um, the example that we want to avoid is the USS Juno. And uh, what happened to USS Juno, this was, uh, I believe, in the fall of 42 or 43. Um, it was torpedoed. Uh, it blew up. Uh, the Navy kept on sailing and left about 100 sailors uh, in the water, survivors from the crew. Uh, when they were picked up 10 days later, there were only, I know, a dozen of them left alive. Juno became famous because that was where the five Sullivan brothers all perished, right. some of whom actually got survived the sinking of the ship but died uh, later on in the, in the water. Uh, the American people would never forgive the Navy if that were to happen again. Uh, so... The Navy needs to develop the mechanisms to rescue these uh, sailors. You know, one, one possibility being a, you know, a rescue ship. Our, we've also uh, uh, suggested that maybe uh, the Navy acquires something like the Japanese amphibious um, aircraft. Uh, they have a, a, a search and uh, rescue aircraft. It's amphibious. Oh, the, the, Shin, the Shinmiwa. Yep, that's it. Uh, it's actually rescued U.S. pilots who have uh, gone down uh, in the Pacific, uh, and that would be a way to rescue some of the air crews that get shot down during this, um, um, you know, during a conflict. Again, you know, for humanitarian reasons, for morale reasons, you know, the crews have to believe that someone will come and get them if they get shot down. Plus, is the fact that you know these are extremely valuable personnel that you want to uh, preserve. So, there are things that that we can do. Uh, to enhance our posture. And there are some things we can do to prepare both the force and the American population for what might be entailed in a conflict like this. I, I want to get um, to, um, let me let me ask you about allies and, and, and partners, Mark, uh, before, before we move on, because what I thought was really interesting was in this Taiwan scenario, it was effectively the United States and Japan that were fighting this, but a number of other allies and partners were not engaged. The South Koreans had their hands full with the North Koreans and the Chinese. Uh, the Australians were not directly uh, involved and a lot of other nations stayed on the sidelines. Obviously you have to structure a war game and there are you know, limitations on that. But you know, just as we have allies and partners and we count on them to be able to help us, the Chinese also have their allies and partners, right? I mean, they have Russia, they have North Korea, uh, they also have Iran. Uh, Jim uh, Stavridis and Elliot Ackerman in their book 2034 talk about the alliance, right? Uh, so they have their own allies and partners. And indeed, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, assistance of convenience, uh, the nations that are willing to help them, even if Tony Blinken just uh, struck a deal in, in Manila. I, I mean, is, it, should we assume that our allies and partners will be there for us because that is the fundamental assumption we have. 
And um, if not, why not? Yeah. Well, our, we had to make, a couple, of course, a couple of assumptions uh, in our base case. I mean, as you note, we assumed that the United States would be in from the very beginning. And of course, the Taiwanese are in. Uh, we assumed that the Japanese would give us access to our bases and overflight rights, but would not actively participate in hostilities unless the Chinese attacked uh, their homeland. Uh, in most of the uh, cases, the Chinese do do that uh, and bring the, the Japanese in, but not uh, in all of us and all of them. And that was our best guess based on that would be sort of the inertia um, option. That is you know, the, the, the path of least resistance for the Japanese. There are also the, the Philippines. Um, you know, their, their military is very weak. They're very exposed. They're very nervous about the Chinese. Uh, we've been rebuilding our relationship with them. It's unlikely, I think, that they would actively participate in combat. First, their, their forces are relatively weak. You know, we might be able to get basing rights and overflight rights. We um, use that in one of our uh, scenarios. Uh, it makes a little difference, uh, not a big difference for Taiwan, much bigger difference if there's a conflict uh, in the South China Sea. Um, we assumed that we had basing in uh, Australia. We did not include their forces, although you know it's possible that they might be willing um, perhaps later on to uh, send their forces uh, to participate. And we didn't make any judgments about what Europe and our NATO allies might do. Uh, you know, personally, I doubt if they would be involved. Uh, it's possible that some of them might, you know, the Brits might send some contingents, but whatever they did, it was not going to happen in the first couple of weeks. You know, that would be a, a, a capability that would arrive uh, later on. So there is value in having uh, allies and partners, uh, if only because they didn't deny those areas to the Chinese. So the Chinese aren't operating out of the Philippines. Uh, but in the case of the Western Pacific, uh, you know, there are some pretty severe limits also. I want to take you uh, to um, a capabilities uh, question. I, I think the administration deserves a lot of credit for changing the nature of the discussion from legacy systems, which is what folks would say, to actually relevant systems. Uh, and here, I think Kath Hicks, uh, who you worked with for uh, many years at CSIS before she became the deputy secretary, has really gone out of her way to make the case that, look, not everything that's old is not relevant, and there may be newer things that may be not relevant. We have to look at relevancy. And if you look at a World War II example, right, battleships were uh, overcome by carrier aviation in terms of fleet actions and, and all of that, even though there were, and we started this conversation, we were sort of reminiscing a little bit about the Battle of Cape Matapan. Um, uh, you know, we... There are legacy systems that are actually remarkably useful, for example, B-52s. Uh, the debate goes for even unmanned systems, right? I mean, one group of folks will say, well, you know, un unmanned systems, uh, you know, cannot operate in these contested environments, at least some of the systems that we have currently in the, in the inventory, whereas others say, actually, they can be remarkably relevant um, in terms of comms relays and even the Marine Corps looking at innovative ways of using um, unmanned systems in order to project fires so that not everything is an F-35 challenge. From your standpoint, what's the key to getting this balance right? Um, and what's the key to relevancy? Uh, because there's this sort of sense that if it's all new, we need all new things to go into this kind of a, a conflict, and that's not actually abundantly the case, or doesn't uh, seem to be the case. Yep, yep. Uh, and let me say two, two things here. Uh, first, to pick up on the example you used, bombers were tremendously useful because you could base them outside of the uh, Chinese uh, defensive zone, but they could fly into the zone and then they could launch long range munitions. So the B1s, the B-52s uh, and the, the B2s uh, were all very useful. Just not very many B2s. Uh, uh, and the Air Force's desire to retire all the B1s uh, and retire them early, even before the uh, B-21s come online, I think is uh, badly mistaken. These are the assets that the Air Force needs to be uh, hanging on to. Um, you know, the variety of, of you know, newer uh, capabilities. Uh, you know, one thing is, uh, you know, uh, a lot of TAC Air was helpful, uh, but, you know, hey, if I were the Air Force and I was had to make a choice between buying more TAC Air and maintaining the bombers, I would keep the bombers because, uh, uh, you know, they, of those uh, capabilities that uh, they bring. But the other, the other point was that 
numbers do matter. Uh, the uh, in the game there are both fifth gen and for the U.S. Four, what we call four and a half gen, uh, and both of them were useful. Uh, and the U.S. player uh, needed a lot of both of them, particularly in the latter scenarios that we were looking at, where some part of U.S. forces are uh, held back because of a crisis elsewhere in the world, you know, in Europe or the Middle East or something like that. So. Uh, it wasn't just a case of buying small numbers of really uh, exquisite stuff. Uh, the United States need also to have some uh, quantity, some uh, capacity, as well as capability. As we look at China and Russia, right, we, at, just at a time when we have a recognition that China is actually the pacing threat and the, the most important challenge, the Russians have come up and shown that actually um, they are dangerous uh, and certainly we're going to be you know, in a prolonged proxy war uh, against the Russians uh, that are going to have global implications. Um, you know, and when Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan, it gives China an opportunity to maybe help the Russians in order to sort of stick it to us. What are... What's the approach, the framework, and the strategy that we need and the capabilities we need in order to be able to deal with this and a number of lesser cases? Or do you think that the direction that we're basically on, the track we're on, actually puts us in pretty good stead? Or you know, that, that it's not the right strategy and we have to move with far greater urgency in order to field some of these capabilities? Like, how do you, how do you see the the panoply of challenges that are out there and the ways that, that at least I could you can clearly say right I mean the last three administrations are, have been working to improve those specific capabilities against these two challenges. I'm in a little different place here than much of the strategy community. Bridge Colby and I argue about this all the time. Uh, Bridge would focus all of our efforts and capabilities on China, arguing that it is the greatest threat, and he would. Um, downplay significantly, if necessary, other theaters like Europe and the Middle East. Uh, my argument is that you know, that works theoretically. It doesn't work in the real world. And we've had a dramatic example of that with Ukraine. Uh, the United strategists might argue that the Europeans should be handling Ukraine. The Europeans are wealthy. They've got large armed forces. Uh, there's no reason the United States is sending uh, forces to Eastern Europe and providing most of the uh, weapons to Ukraine. But the fact is that the United States is the only one who can do that. Uh, the Europeans, for a variety of reasons, just would not be able to do what the United States is, is doing there. Uh, and the same thing in the Middle East. To a lesser extent, we've pulled a lot of forces out, but we still uh, have a, um, a hostile Iran that threatens its neighbors. And you know we may need to maintain a, a presence and a capability there. So my argument is, as a result, we need a spectrum of capabilities that can handle a wide variety of possible future conflicts, not just a conflict in the Western Pacific. Recognizing that means you have to maintain forces that are both capable and relatively uh, large. You know, I, when I say a spectrum of capabilities, I mean not everything needs to be fifth gen aircraft. You know, having some four and a half gen aircraft uh, uh, is also uh, very helpful, and even having a, a few low-end aircraft, the uh, Special Operations Forces is buying this um, 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 close air support uh, aircraft. And the, I think the that's- The Sky Warden, that's uh, L3 along with Air Tractor. It's a uh, tail dragging yep. agricultural aircraft yep. Uh, yep. that that the uh, Special Operations Command, I think it's about 70 airplanes that they are acquiring. Exactly. Uh, and uh, uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it, it's crazy to send an F- 35 to drop bombs on insurgents. Um, so I think a spectrum of capabilities uh, makes a lot of sense because the United States has global responsibilities. And you see that reflected in the strategies that came come out of the Biden administration, at least what we can infer about their strategy. They haven't actually pub published it. The, the Trump administration, the later um, Obama administration, um, you know, had these forward deployed global strategies I think that I think that is the right strategy, but it also costs a lot of money, and the administrations have to step up to that cost. Just very quickly, parenthetically, right? Unmanned systems did not feature prominently in your exercise, and there is an enormous investment the nation is making in these kinds of uh, capabilities. Um, 
and and you could say that we we have some of these capabilities left over, right? I mean, the U.S. Air Force has something like three hundred Predator Reaper uh, aircraft, uh, for example, in the in the inventory that are slated for uh, retirement. You know, full disclosure, uh, General Atomics is our sponsor on this, but this is kind of my question. Ultimately, what's the role for unmanned systems? Because they didn't play prominently uh, in in your game, and was sort of curious whether you know, for unmanned, for underwater or surface or otherwise, um, is there as valuable a role from your standpoint in all of this? Or is there actually a wider role for these uh, platforms to play open ocean surveillance and a whole bunch of other missions? Uh, comms relays, for example, Brian Clark has done some very thoughtful work on, uh, you know, just because it's old uh, or was in the last war doesn't mean that it's not useful in the next conflict. From your standpoint, what's the the role of unmanned or is that overbilled from, from your perspective? Well, the fact that it didn't play prominently was not a statement on our part about the role of unmanned. It was a reflection of two things. First, we abstracted a lot of the ISR just to make the game playable in a, a single day. Uh, and the other part is that the game is set in 2026 when very few of these new capabilities, unmanned right. surface vessels, unmanned underwater vessels, many of the unmanned uh, aerial uh, vehicles are, are, have not been uh, deployed yet. So there really wasn't anything to play uh, for the most part. So it was not a statement on our part that they aren't valuable. And you know, personally, I believe we ought to continue to experiment with these kinds of vehicles you know, uh, in many areas, you know, we're at the sort of early stages, but we need to get stuff out there into the field and see how it works and then figure out what, you know, what's really valuable, uh, what's not. And, you know, then eventually, you know, have programs of, of record, but, you know, uh, uh, an aggressive uh, experimentation testing uh, um, program, uh, clearly the way to go. Just one other follow-on to that, right? I mean, the U.S. Air Force's number one modernization priority at this point is the next generation air dominance uh, aircraft. Uh, and obviously, there's a, a lot of reasons why the Air Force wants uh, the, the platform. And obviously, it's looking at a family of systems, not just for, you know, to, to create a sort of a much more modern reconnaissance strike complex, uh, if you will, to borrow a Russian phrase, and to be able to do it at range and over vaster uh, distances. Do, do, does the need without you becoming anti-Air Force at all or, or teasing anything out. But I mean, is there anything about the game that says that that's a critical capability, even though I think, you know, I was uh, there for a resupply mission uh, for Marines on, uh, right, which is another concept the Marine Corps is saying, like, you know, by, by putting these uh, regiments forward in Taiwan, we can deter. And then it becomes an expensive resupply problem, which has always been a criticism. And if I recall, it was 14 C-17s that were being escorted by F-22s ended up getting shot down, uh, right? They were, how yeah. important is NGAD? How important are some of these concepts ultimately in, in terms of being validated in the work that you're doing or, uh, or invalidated? Uh, I mean, we, did, you know, we didn't play NGAD because of course that's beyond uh, uh, 2026. I think the one insight that we would have for any future uh, aircraft is that it needs to have much longer legs. Uh, basing these aircraft at Kadena and in some of the Japanese bases, you know, was an invitation to attack by uh, Chinese missiles. That's why so many of them were lost. You know, the dynamics on the US side was that the US had to keep attacking the Chinese amphibious fleet so that it could attrite that fleet before the Chinese could establish themselves in strength on Taiwan. But to do that, they could use bombers, but they also had to push their tack air forward. They would push the tack air forward. Chinese missiles would destroy half of them. The other half would uh, continue to attack the uh, uh, Chinese amphibious forces. Reinforcements co would come in. They'd keep attacking and so forth. Um, if the U.S. You know, could stand off a bit, uh, uh, you know, that would help tremendously. So, you know, my, I said, my, my one big insight here is longer legs for TAC air. 
Uh, excellent. Well, well said. Clear, uh, clear bumper sticker on that. Uh, last, last two questions. Um, you are not just a, a strategist, and I want to get to the last question, which is what's good strategy and what's bad strategy, right? But one of the things which I'm interested in getting your take on is you also have been doing a lot of very interesting work on industrial strategy. And if we look at World War II, you know, right now we're monetizing time. So the longer programs take, the more costly they are, the longer their development cycles, um, the more they are lucrative uh, or costly, depending on how you want to look at it. Whereas in World War II, almost everything that we did was actually engineered generally for producibility. Can we make large quantities of them quickly? Do we need to have a change in sort of fundamentally how we're looking at this, right? I mean, whether it's refilling magazines, whether it's developing new capabilities, it, it seems to take longer. Again, Rat Willard was Paycom a long time ago, and his number one requirement was LRASM. Every Paycom has said how important it is, and yet we're not getting to where we need to get to as quickly as we need to get to it. And you could replicate that across a whole variety of other systems. From an industrial base standpoint, Mark, or a requirement standpoint, or a thinking standpoint, are we are we having the revolution you think we need? And if not, what's the revolution, mental revolution, cultural revolution, intellectual revolution we need, um, given where it is we're going and that numbers matter and we're, we're unlikely to have as much money as we'd like to have? Yeah. Uh, well, what you're alluding to is this study we did on industrial mobilization. I think it came out, I don't know, maybe two years ago now. Um, I don't think the United States is going to change its basic approach to buying uh, weapons, that is, we buy weapons that are very sophisticated, very capable, and very expensive. But we can do a few things to hedge against the possibility of a long war where you have a lot of attrition and numbers start uh, to matter. I mean, the first thing is just to get a sense about uh, uh, what attrition is going to look like. Uh, in our study, we estimated how long it would take to replace the current inventories. And, you know, those numbers were anywhere between, you know, four years and 50 years. Uh, but we were just looking at replacing current inventories. We were looking at the dynamics of attrition, which could be, a, you know, much worse. Uh, we, uh, we did do some um, work earlier about M1 tanks, just hypothetically, you know, if uh, the M1, uh, the Army's M1 tank force, you know, was in combat, you know, how long would it take um, you know, what would be the attrition um, uh, on that force? And, and it came out that after about nine to 10 months, the army would be, would go from 15 armored brigades down to two uh, using sort of World War II uh, attrition rates. Uh, so just understanding the problem uh, is important. Uh, identifying bottlenecks in the produ production processes. It might be that for relatively small amounts of money, we could uh, ease production bottlenecks and maybe double uh, uh, production in an emergency. We're seeing that maybe with uh, javelins right now. Doubling is not going to solve the problem, but it's better. Uh, uh, it might be that that uh, cadre um, um, units or you know having uh, mothballed equipment would be valuable instead of throwing away a lot of the old equipment. You know, keeping it around so that it could be um, you know um, brought forward uh, in an emergency where there's been a lot of uh, attrition. Um, and finally, thinking about alternatives. In other words, for the Navy surface uh, fleet, uh, uh, it's going to lose a lot of destroyers and surface combatants. Those are essentially irreplaceable in anything under you know, a decade. But it may be that the, the Navy could put missile canisters on merchant ships and turn those into uh, uh, combatants. Uh, I think that there are a variety of, of uh, alternative approaches that might be possible. And putting all of that together, you know, might be, would be a reasonable hedge uh, and would certainly be a start not requiring us to do a fundamental change in culture, which I just don't think is in the cards. Um, my uh, last question, uh, even though I'd like this conversation to go longer, I'm cognizant uh, that uh, we've uh, taken up enough of your time. Um, like all strategists, Mark, you study strategy, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you were scarred uh, uh, deeply by many quadrennial defense reviews and other uh, strategies. Um, you know, you, you've been in combat and you uh, were involved in a war that was resoundingly criticized, uh, ultimately as a failure of strategy. 
What constitutes good strategy worth emulating and bad strategy that should serve as a cautionary tale? You know, my foot stomp here on strategy uh, as it is on, you know, any um, government decision is to capture what was known at the time. You know, it's very easy to go back in history and say, oh, let me look, let me tell you the five mistakes that, you know, this decision maker made uh, when you have the, the value of hindsight. Uh, you're seeing a lot of that with Ukraine, you know. Here are the five strategic mistakes that Putin made in launching the attack on Ukraine, which, of course, is easy now because you've seen how things have played out. Trying to capture what it was like at the beginning without knowing how things came up, came out, is, I think, an important insight into uh, strategy. Um, and, you know, having said that, there were still, you can look back and say, there were still some bad strategies. I mean, even at the time, people should have known better. But there are other instances where I think arguably, um, you know, people did the right thing. It just came out badly. And, and so are there things you want to hold out as like, here was a good strategy and here was a bad strategy, sort of empirically irrespective of um, condition, right? Here's, here's where we sort of got it right. Here's where we sort of really got it wrong and yeah. it might be worth reflecting yeah. on. Well, you know, a good strategy, I would look back and say, you know, the U.S. strategy of containment during the Cold War was a good strategy. It was very successful. And I think it was a sensible strategy, given what we knew at the time when we put it together in sort of the late uh, 1940s. Um, a clear bad strategy, I, I would argue, is uh, the German uh, energy strategy. Uh, you know, their energy strategy was essentially to shut down coal and nuclear and rely on Russian uh, gas imports. Uh, that sh it should have been obvious from 2014 on that that was a bad strategy. Uh, 2014, that's when Russia invades Crimea. They invade uh, the Donbass. Uh, Putin gets much more aggressive. You know, uh, uh, the Russia, the uh, Germans should have recognized at that point, as many people did, that sooner or later this was not going to work well. That the Russians were not. Uh, the uh, cooperative partner that they were imagining, but the Russian, the, the Germans went ahead with it. And of course, now they are uh, where they are uh, scrambling to reopen coal mines, uh, keep nuclear power plants uh, going and praying that the war ends before they get to winter uh, and their homes are all cold. Uh, certainly prophetic words, uh, Mark, right? Uh, you're, you're right in terms of hindsight and what were drivers and, and dynamics, but uh, I, I think that everybody can agree that there were a lot of other ways to handle the situation other, other than that. When are the results of your uh, great war games uh, being uh, issued, just so that folks uh, know uh, when to tune in and maybe we can have you in for the full after action on that? Uh, a few stories have been coming out with other journalists like yourself have uh, participated. Um, so there are a few uh, insights that are coming out now, uh, but the full report isn't going to come out until early December. We first have to finish all of the game iterations and do the analysis and finish writing up the final report. So beginning of December, we're going to have a rollout event, the, um, the report, and probably a video to go with it. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Always love having you back on uh, the program and look forward to having you back again. Thanks so much. Happy to join the show.